Cool. All right, ready? One, two, three. Yeah, you fucked it up. My name's Richard Rockman. I'm a graduate student at Cal State Northridge and a plant ecologist. I'm in the uh, Terra Horse Lab, um, which mostly studies like evolution and symbiosis and cool stuff like that. I don't study any of that. I study plants that come up after wildfire. Um, right now I'm looking at the Woolsey fire and that happened in the Santa Monica mountains in 2018. I'm also the Los Angeles County Coordinator for the Western Monarch Count, uh, where we count monarchs that are overwintering on the coast of California. So like migratory monarchs. Um, what else do I do? I don't know. I'm like involved in way too many projects, but... Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how the fuck you do it. Um, but I've also done biodiversity work with CSUN Institute for Sustainability, looking at like urban ecology. And I love iNaturalist. Um, I do like some light science communication on Instagram and Twitter and stuff. I like teaching you're, classes. You're about that life. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. What got you into it? Oh, shit. Um, so... I, I knew I wanted to work with animals since I was a little kid. And I feel like a lot of people get into this just being like, I want to work with animals. But like, what does that mean, right? I, yeah, since I like, I think one of my first words, because I was like learning uh, developmentally disabled as a kid. Um, I, I might still be, I don't know. <laughs> but um, I, uh, my first word was elephant. And elephant yeah i used to like play with ant like hard animals and like make them in different, different ecosystems and battles and stuff like that hard uh, animals <laughs> yeah not not erect but like you know <laughs> like plastic animals right gotcha did you chew on them <laughs> what did you chew on them i mean probably i have a pretty bad oral fixation problem my nails are absolutely disgusting oh dude same yeah but um <laughs> But um, I, I knew I wanted to be like a farmer or a zookeeper or something. Um, so I went to CSU Fort Collins for zoology when I graduated high school. And I dropped out because drugs are really cool. <laughs> and I uh, floundered a around for a while. And I finally got back into school um, while I was dog grooming. And uh, I know I was, you did that. Yeah, I dog groomed for maybe four or five years. Um, while I was like getting sober and getting comfortable in my, uh, in my own feet. Uh, but um, so I knew I wanted to get back to school because I was surrounded by idiots, like just doing dog grooming. Like, oh God, I have friends that are dog groomers. I have to put a caveat now. Not you guys. You guys are cool. But yeah, dog, dog, dog owners are some of the dumbest people in the world. But, oh yeah. I just, I felt really like trapped. And so I knew I wanted to go back to school. So I decided I wanted to be a zookeeper. So I went to uh, Moore Park College, which has the America's Teaching Zoo. And it's a super competitive program. Oh, it's cool. It's like, it's a community college, right? But then they have like um, 
they have like a teaching zoo inside of it with animals that you can learn how to train to become a zookeeper. They also have a butterfly breeding program. Like the, that one thing that you used to work with, the Palos Verde Blue Butterfly, mm-hmm. PV, is, what do they call them, PVBs? PVBs. Yeah. Like a microplastic. Yeah, but so they like breed those. But so that's separate from the program, but it's it's housed at the America's Teaching Zoo. But it's really competitive. You only, There's only like a few people that get in every year. Um, so I didn't get in. And so I'm just looking online, like, how do I, where do I go from here? Uh, and I didn't think I'd go to Northridge. I actually thought Northridge was a silly place that had a horrific earthquake. <laughs> and I was like, I will, I would never go to a CSU. Like, I want to go like Harvard or something like that. But like, it was, it was more accessible for me since I had very, 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 very little money. And uh, they also had, you know, biologists that were heavily involved in conservation and working with the National Park Service. Um, and I, I thought I was going to study mountain lions and bobcats. So I was like, oh, cool. Like people at the university have done that kind of research. So I, I got in. Um, I started taking a lot of classes. I started arguing with professors in office hours. Uh, that led to me getting asked to be signed on to a plant grant. And then they were like, hey, we know you like animals, but why don't you just study plants with us? And that led to me doing dendrochronology, tree ring research, and sagebrush, right? Sagebrush, yeah. Talk about that. What's up with that? What is sagebrush? What's up with sagebrush? Do you want to see one of my samples? Yeah. Yeah, hell yeah. This is great. Visual medium. Well, for you. <laughs> Can you see it? Yeah, it looks like a frozen steak. Well, it's like. I like wrapped them. Do I have any unwrapped ones? I'll text you a picture of one. Okay, yeah. But like I smoothed them um, pro- with progressively finer sandpaper until we get to the nano scale. And then it's like just supremely smooth. And so you can see every ring really well. Yeah, it's super cool. And then the rings are separated by cork. And I- I've talked to Patty about this in our in our plant group, but like that's so cool that xylem would be separated by cork which is like bark mm-hmm. right bark and cork are like of the similar cell types i think now I'm... Well, the cork is cambium right uh, or no i guess on like the spanish there the is cork cork, there is cork cambium that is a or that is a thing someone's gonna listen to this that's like hey i know more about physiology than this guy does and he's wrong yes but, uh, so you got like interxylary cork is what it's called and so you can see the tree rings really well or shrub rings whatever um super neat and so you can count them really well and so you can tell when the artemisia tridentata died quite easily so we wanted to use this the way that you could count rings in this shrub species to see when a certain population died versus and by comparing it to the living populations. And this was in an area called, you're very familiar with, called Owens Valley, mm-hmm. where Los Angeles steals its water from. Mm-hmm. And so what we do that's particularly insidious in Owens Valley is w- drain water from wells, underground wells. And sagebrush, since it has such deep roots that go sometimes up to four meters, sagebrush depends on well water or like deep, deep-rooted water. So if you're extracting that and drying out these um, areas that sagebrush might be using groundwater, you're going to have die off. And so what we were trying to look at 
potentially, and the research still isn't done. I know it's been like five years and we haven't published it. I have, I have money to finish it. So I'm hoping to get it done this summer, but we were trying to figure out when most of this population of sagebrush died. Like, and does it correlate to any droughts where LA was taking more well water or less well water? Okay. Yeah. How old do they get? So there's records of sagebrush that have been older than a hundred years, maybe over like around 200 years. But most sagebrush tended to poop out after about like 60, 70, 80 years. Okay, same. So I see they get fat as hell sometimes. Is that like, is that just kind of the way like certain like environmental factors hit or is that because they're actually that old? So maybe both, right? But if you're a sagebrush, especially Artemisia tridentata, variety tridentata, which is the basin big sagebrush, if you're right next to a road, you could be like 12, 15 feet tall, super arborescent looking. And you, but next to a road, you get all this sick runoff from the water, like that runs off the road and feeds your roots. And you're getting maybe some groundwater and maybe you're next to a creek. So you can have all these like confluences of just really good water compared to like other individuals. So you have these really big um, xylem rings as an effect of that, right? So if you have better water, better conditions, you're going to put on more cell, uh, your, your cells are going to get larger. You're going to have more cells in each year of xylem. So... It depends, right? And so like a, a sagebrush a few meters away that has less access to the road water, less access to the stream bed, less access to groundwater, it might have smaller rings. But if you average all those out in the population, you probably will find a climatic signal, right? You'll find a, the smaller rings indicate poor years of water, of the more like drought conditions, and the larger rings are years of better water, so less drought conditions, right? And sagebrush, does have a climatic signal to it but of course like there's better species like the bristlecone pine they're mm-hmm. gonna have like really good climatic signal where you can you know the, i mean they use bristlecone pines for like to look at like um what it like radioisotope um timing like in calculations and stuff so, yeah they're looking at like what the weather was like when like the roman empire fell right it's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's so weird. Like when I was out there, that roadside water table was like the only thing that was alive the whole year. Like the creosote, the only time I ever saw green creosote was immediately off the road, which we couldn't collect seed for because we had a 10 foot rule in case it was like a mitigation site and bad water basin of all places. Yo, that like off the road phenomena like we need to be looking at that more so i'm saying like everyone talks about how weeds get traveling up and down roads but like there's some like road cuts are like the best especially in serpentine areas you get every serpentanthus i've ever seen more or less besides a couple have been on road cuts you know think about joshua trees in urban areas next to roads those are the ones that are like flowering which is so weird because you think that they just get completely compressed because they don't really have do they have deep roots? Are they just kind of the fibrous, like, I believe advent, advantageous fibrous roots. Yeah. 
it's not that word, but that's the word that appears in my head. But yeah, I think they're like far spreading roots. Um, there's some folks that say they're super sensitive to like disturbance. I've, I've actually done a literature dive into Joshua trees and their roots near the surface. So this might get a little political, but <laughs> so they, there is a lot of disturbance in the Mojave in terms of where Joshua trees and their roots and stuff. But there are some folks that are saying, oh, well, if you step on the surface near a Joshua tree, you could be like destroying those roots. But like, these are like commonly windswept environments that sometimes even get disturbance such as like snowfall, right? And so you have these like erosion kind of incidents, especially from wind, where these roots are kind of constantly shifting. They've, th this one paper I looked at described Joshua trees in areas that had like mostly sand as a substrate. And you have to imagine that those areas are like heavily impacted by erosion. So I, I don't know how much disturbance plays in a fact of their roots because they have so many and they're spread out so far, right? Where things get really tricky is when rodents and like humans, right? Disturb maybe their um, living tissue, right? Um, and start uh, taking away some of their ability like not the stock, I don't know what you call it. Trunk? Yeah, like it's kind of a trunk, isn't it? But it's not because yeah, I mean, tree's not a thing. It's just a way to grow. Right. Um, no tree yeah. family. Yeah, but like hurting some of that living, uh, potentially hurting some of that uh, living tissue, and then the the individual dries out from, like from the base up by being yeah. disturbed, like right at that trunk tissue. I don't know. I think that also is something that needs to be looked at is disturbance of roots in Joshua trees. But my point being like in Yucca Valley and stuff, um, isn't that what that town's called? Yucca Valley? Mm -hmm. Somebody said Yucca the other day, but that sounds wrong. But um, so those trees or whatever, the Joshua trees that are right next to the road and they maybe have a sprinkler influence. So there might, I, I doubt it though. I don't think people are watering them. It's gotta be runoff from the road, that water running off the road, watering the trees. And then they're the ones that bloom. And then the entire rest of the population might not be blooming, but the ones right next to the road. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Like the one place it can penetrate because it's like not crusted over too. Yeah. Oh, that's true too. So Biocrest might, be taking up some of the water that might not be getting to the shrub it's a competitive environment right and so you got like water being the limiting factor and so much and like what what plants are competing over i'm gonna yeah. be hung for hypothesizing that yeah <laughs> gosh i need to not drink beer when i do these because i keep getting the burps i have to stifle yeah i don't drink <laughs> it's hot and i was nervous <laughs> but um yeah so i studied sagebrush and i'll probably do that for my phd um look at sagebrush too i don't know if i'm gonna end up doing necessarily like uh dendrochronology but it would be a neat thing to do it, it's kind of messy like my last lab where i was doing dendro i just like there's dust everywhere and i had these saw like not a saw a sander that I had to flip over to modify. And then I had this one student that, that was helping me out and she, she would get really tired and she like burned her wrist one time from working <laughs> with it. Yeah, it's just like, um, 
it gets uh it gets like kind of dangerous but it's fun like i i like working with dendro and um if you're safe it, it, if you're like focused and safe it's it's fine and it, you get really cool data out of it so yeah but uh for a few years after i did that dendro project i went from i went study with a tropical semester at my university and studied uh rodents and harvestmen in ecuador oh yeah cool. talk about that that was pretty sick um i i didn't like being in such close contact with other people for an extended period of time that was kind of rough for me were you camping um, or like in a hostel no we were staying at like in a shack field stations so okay it gets pretty clicky pretty fast and then yeah. especially if you're with like biologists that aren't that maybe you're just there to get credits they're not necessarily there because they like ecology uh which was kind of the case with like you know mixed undergraduate population i don't know so it kind of kind of got a little rough but um i saw so many animals i saw like things like uh amazonian river dolphins are the pink ones yeah or no that's in china are they pink yes they're pink like shit like gray it was oh i was bawling my eyes out <laughs> i was like one of my life goals was to see one of those what are they called do you remember like their 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 name name oh by like the indigenous populations there no mm-hmm. I, I don't um i'm sure they have so there's a ton of different indigenous populations all across the amazon basin mm-hmm. so um there's all different sorts of names for them. oh yeah just you know one always escapes into what larger river monsters does a thing and they call it that and that's its name you know yeah um but so so i saw that capybara i got bit by an anaconda like a baby what i still count it (laughs) hell yeah i saw brazilian wandering spiders was really cool um probably got stalked by a jaguar i found out um probably i I was sampling uh harvestmen at night because the harvestmen and scorpions and stuff they fluoresce with the um uv near uv light the black oh really yeah and so uh (laughs) i was out i probably shouldn't have been out uh my partner that i was working with he ran off because i was taking too long and so i was by myself (laughs) and uh i was getting a little paranoid this is gonna turn into a true crime podcast no so like i was getting paranoid so i ended up running back which again i probably shouldn't have done but the next day i came back and some girls from boston university were at the field station too and they they saw um jaguar foot tracks on the same trail that i i was on god yeah and that part that area of the amazon has some of the highest densities of jaguars so <laughs> um yeah someone else in our group saw a taper that was pretty cool oh sweet some people saw the giant river otters um, i believe tapers are real Okay, so the Amazon River Dolphin, dolphin, also known as the Boto Bufio or Pink Boto. River Dolphin. That makes sense. What language is that? Uh, I don't know. Wikipedia doesn't have a hyperlink for it. <laughs> oh, cool. God, they are creepy looking, though. I got to say. Yeah, they're they're bizarre. Yeah, so like most of what I was doing, I was like working with harvestmen, which are like they eat like mostly detritivores. They eat uh-huh. little bits of bits of dead things that they find, and they're super cute um yeah arachnids but i thought they were so poisonous they would kill you if only they could break your skin 
that the is that the mithra on daddy long legs so like in daddy long legs is like a bunch of different things like crane flies get called daddy long legs and then um cellar spiders get called daddy long legs and um opilionis or uh the harvest men also get called daddy long legs but no they're like they don't have i don't even think they have venom um and they have there's all these different like shapes to them and some of them have like spikes on their like oh fuck that yeah they're really cool looking and they have super long legs and they do parental care and they have nuptial gifts of like sperm packets and stuff like (laughs) that yeah i'm like conservative when it comes to spiders like i support them i just don't want to see it <laughs> i saw a spider the wandering brazilians brazilian wandering spider the size of a dinner plate it was just Fuck. yeah one of those deadly animals too it was really cool it will get you there while i was taking pictures of it um no i did get i told you about this i got a bot fly i mean oh were- yeah okay all right yes okay walk me through the bot fly experience well i didn't know what i had i thought it was- <laughs> But eventually you did. Yeah, eventually I did. I thought I had skin leishmaniasis. But so like I had this like pimple kind of thing that was getting like worse and worse on my back and bigger and bigger. So you're, you're out in the green hell of Ecuador. Yeah, I mean green hell is beautiful. Green hell. Amazon jungle. You but, have okay. this this rash and you're not thinking much about it. You're busy. You're getting stalked by panthers. You're you're killing every snake you find because they're trying to kill you. We we did see a was it a death no there's like this really dangerous snake we saw that just chilled on the trail for an entire week in the same spot it might have like gone off and then came back to the yeah because it just ate the last undergrad that came by and needed a week to digest them um a lance lance head i think that's what they're called that's what lance armstrong fans are called (laughs) sorry all right anyway you got this horrible lesion yeah so i got this like pimple lesion kind of thing on my back and like it hurts but it, it, it wasn't that bad and i think i actually got it in mindo in the cloud forest so there's like the mountains in ecuador right like the Andes mm-hmm. mountains but then there's like lower elevation like um cloud forest where we were staying um we weren't in the high andes but like lower um and that's probably where i got it where um you know it, the same kind of bot fly that i think goes after howler monkeys too if you see a howler <laughs> monkey typically they're like covered in bot flies it's kind damn of, what does that say about you i'm i'm a gnarly person <laughs> keep hollering lifestyle that's similar to a howler monkey but um so i was in the we took a vacation to the galapagos before we came back to uh, america and so the transition from doing like hiking almost 10 miles a day in the amazon in the cloud forest to going to wearing sandals in the Galapagos, one of my toes just started like just wanting to fall off my foot. What? And so I, it was getting really infected. It was in your toe? No, no, no. It was on my back. But, oh, okay. Like, I had a separate incident where one of my toes was falling off um, and like just completely separating from my body. It was horrific. Ah, so, but I'm like going about my, it's getting like worse. As Which toe? Those days go by. Which toe? It's the big toe. It's on my oh, right foot. Big you need toe. that one. No, 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 no. I'm counting my toes. Oh, sorry. This little piggy went to market. Two, three, four. It was my fourth toe on my right foot. Oh. The ring toe. Yeah, the ring toe. You don't need that one. 
I don't I don't think so. I don't think you need any of your toes. Yeah, they're for balance. I know Phil the Future taught me that you only need four. <laughs> Did he have four toes? Yeah, they they from the far off world of 2075, they had evolved away the pinky toe. But um, so I was like by the end of the trip, I was like barely walking on my foot. But in the yeah. beginning of the Galapagos trip, I was fine. But um, <laughs> okay. But like the butt fly was getting worse and worse too. And so yeah. I had these like two really bad pains. And so I went to a, a doctor when I got back to America um, that was like, hey, like take these antibiotics like to deal with your toe. Hopefully it'll help your back too. We don't know what's going on with your back. Oh man, you don't want to hear that. And so we're looking on the CDC website and I'm giving him ideas of what I think. <laughs> and he's <laughs> like, you're on that weird crunchy paper and your ass is out you're like i don't know man could it be a fly so i told him i thought it was skin leishmaniasis which is like a a flesh-eating uh disease oh sick because people that go to ecuador like scientists occasionally get it um and so he didn't know so he thought like maybe that's it but i i was going to a field job right after that working with usgs um studying sage grouse and their vegetation Uh So he's like, don't do that. And I'm like, well, I need the money. So I'm going to go do that. And so I moved to basically Susanville to the field site. So I went oh, yeah. to Susanville. Oh, that was that recently, huh? This was 2018. Yeah. Yeah. And so... We were beefing on the internet by then. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I liked your stuff. I still liked your stuff. That's why I like I remained civil. But I just anyways, you I had a horrible parasite, just like me. Fine, fine, fine. But um, so I went out to work with sage grouse and stuff and learn how to do the radio telemetry. And like they called me like the veg guy, even though like at that time I still wasn't even that good with vegetation. But I guess because you were vegetative, because you couldn't walk or bend your back. Oh, I was I was just working through it. And by that time, my toe was starting to heal from the, the toe came. The toe came back. Yeah, but like my back was fucking gnarly. Like, yeah, I, I felt like someone was like stabbing me every two hours. Sheesh. And what I found out was the the fly was eating me every few hours, and then pooping. And so all the what I thought was blood was actually like its feces and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gnarly. Anywho, one day I woke. <sighs> One day I woke up in my bed with the with the pupa in my bed. Oh man, like so the Godfather. I, it, it it went from larva to pupa, um, and I took pictures of it and posted on a Facebook group called Entomology. And uh, Stephen DeGraff, I think that was his name, said, are, "Are you do work with animals?" And I'm like, "I work with sage grouse." And he's like, "Well, any cattle?" I'm like, oh, "I'm not in close contact with cattle." And he's like, where were you last? I'm like, Ecuador. He's like, congratulations on giving birth to a bot fly. Holy shit. So like when you woke up that morning, did you know it came out of you? Or you're like, oh, this is a weird circumstance. It was empty. Your cyst? Yeah, this oh. was empty. God. So, it didn't hurt coming out? You just woke up yeah, and like up. awkward like morning after like, hi, so you got to go. <laughs> so I, uh, so I, I, called the california department of health and was like hey (laughs) you want this and they're like no 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 we don't want that and then they ended up talking to their entomologist who was like yes i want that like i I bet i want that 
Um, but by then I already promised it to Cal State Northridge, um, to our entomologist. So now it's in a jar in our collections. Oh, it never made it to adult? I tried, because we talked about that, me and some entomologists, like we wanted to get it to an adult. But, and I put it in a salsa jar with some dirt, but <sighs> I guess that maybe I shouldn't have. Well, I poked holes in it, but I think it was just, <laughs> You got to imagine like that environment is so much diff more different than um, the Amazon or like the cloud forest of Ecuador. Sure, right? Where it, in your it back. Would, it'd be developing in like leaf litter and stuff like that, you know, and the, the adults are pretty. They're, they're really cute. So, yeah, I'll take your word on that. Well, so let me tell you this. So the adult, this is probably what happened. The adults attack a mosquito and then lay the eggs on the mosquito, and the mosquito, no. and the mosquito bites you, and that's how you get the eggs. Oh my god! Or the bot fly lays its eggs on your drying shirts as you dry your clothes, because your clothes never dry in South America, like in the Amazon and stuff. And so they're just like on clothes hangers all the time, because you're like, oh, it's so wet. Like, yeah, the air is all humid and stuff like that. So, do the eggs hatch and they burrow into you? Do the eggs hatch in the larvae? How does how does yeah. the egg the get eggs, into your body? Yes, the eggs hatch near a wound or and then or like on your skin, mm. and then the larva will burrow into you. That's just the worst thing ever. It was it was fine. I mean, I didn't know. I, I just knew like I even went to the emergency room when I was in <laughs> and off in the distance, one of the nurses was like, maybe he got a bot fly has anyone seen that one show about damn like, wild diseases and i'm listening to her going like she's not she doesn't know what she's talking about there's no way she's right the one time urgent care is right it's at the buzzer no, just bot fly this oh was, <laughs> yeah this was the er at a hospital and it was one of the nurses the doctor had no idea but the nurse was right but she didn't tell it to my face she just said it to her colleague. <laughs> she can't just go hey but you might have a bot fly anyway get out of here yeah, no one knew what it was. Did it ever get ID'd? Well, except her. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it's the human bot. Like, I think it's like the human bot fly. I think Does a human bot fly? I, I mean, I don't know how many bot flies go after people in South America. I don't know the answer to that. But like our entomologist ID'd it to um, something hobbleist or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> I have the scientific name somewhere written down. Wretched. Yeah. That's cool. So where else have you worked then? Well, so I was doing uh, the vegetation stuff out in like Susanville, which was really cool. I love the Great Basin. It's oh, yeah. a beautiful part of our country. Um, and so then I came back to Los Angeles after I was done that with trying to get a job with the National Park Service. And I interned with them at uh, Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area. And then I got a... Um, I went from intern making $20 a day, which I don't suggest anyone do. Um, I went from intern making $20 a day and I found out about a veg position as a technician, um, just like in the, in the next cubicle over. And so I swiveled my chair over. It was like, you're hiring for a technician? And they're like, oh, yes. Uh, what's yes, your, Richard. Yeah, what's your experience hiking and stuff like that? And so- I got the position and then that led to me being a lead. Um, but I was let go during the pandemic. So I did that for like almost two years, um, like vegetation work in the uh, in the Wolsey Fire area in the Santa Monica Mountains. Oh, you brought me there. 
Yeah, we went to a pretty cool trail near um, the Backbone, near uh, off the Backbone Trail, which I saw my the first Humboldt lily I ever saw was on that. Was it really? Yeah, I've been looking for years and never found one. Yeah, but now you're seeing so much cooler stuff. Yeah, but it's it's the classics, you know. <laughs> I was just talking to giant Coriolis. We're all jealous of all the cool stuff you're seeing now. Ah, I know. I'm loving it. It's so much cooler than the stuff you were seeing out in uh, Ridgecrest, right? Well, I wasn't seeing anything in Ridgecrest. I was seeing the slow decay of the American dream in Ridgecrest. <laughs> but now you got now you got serpentine. High alpine and everything. I know the Monterey Bay area has one of everything. It's nuts. Like Big Sur, like you, the north end of Big Sur is redwoods. South end is uh, Hespro yucca. Like it it's really? the yeah yeah they grow right on the road. That's cool. I like Hespro yucca. Me too. Those Mormons got it right. That is our Lord's candle. It is our Lord's candle. All praise, all praise be to thee. But have you have you seen the the yucca moth? That no, well, not knowingly, anyway. Yeah. So, like, the trick is to go out during like late afternoon, like three, four, five o'clock. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, you'll see it. What's it look like? Is it white? It's like white and black. They're really pretty. I heard somewhere once that they will just collect dirt. Uh, from around a joshua tree and then like years later in storage yucca moths will just emerge like they're on like the t- they're so synced up with the mass seasons for joshua trees and other yuccas i guess that like they're just they're like cicadas almost hmm. i believe that and so if you disturb so that is an, a good argument for not disturbing the soil underneath the joshua tree mm-hmm. it's like how deep down are the the cocoon or whatever the chrysalises cocoons pupae i don't know i'm going off bot fly terminology okay but so like (laughs) so where are the okay so you got the caterpillars that eat from the ovary and then they drop they ate your what (laughs) no no no, like the from the yucca flower (laughs) yeah or the hespera yucca flower whatever you know general we're talking about but so they're like they they developed in the ovary and then they drop to the ground and then um do they, do they drop as caterpillars do they drop as um developing like in the, the middle stage i guess we'll just call it the cocoon or whatever um do they develop in the cocoon and then kind of wiggle their way into the ground how deep are they in the soil and then how long can they stay in that form but to, before they enclose i think that's the correct word enclose and then repeat and find a mate and you know lay their eggs inside of the ovary and stuff so you know i that it's a mystery and I, I think you know i'm excited when i hear about people working on the yucca moth and the, the, the kind of mysteries behind it it's a cool system and then there's like cheaters too that old like yeah the nectar robbers well so not just nectar robbing but also instead of ovipositing through the reproductive tissues of the yucca flower they'll they'll do it on the side or something like that um mm. and the, i'm sure there's parasitoidal wasps that are involved too that are trying to get get at those yummy little caterpillars it's a it's a funky system and you're right it's all like masting events yeah like 2019 that really good rain year it was nuts and then was last it- year there was nothing 
Well, there's some higher elevation areas, but it was just brutal. You call 2019 like a really good? It was like a, it was good, right? 2019 was like a, like, it was like 25 inches in LA of rain. I, but it's pretty good. Yo, it was good. It was good, but I don't great even get. I don't see that's where I'm weird about because I don't think it was enough to get us out of a drought. Well, I mean, it did for that year. I remember everyone was like rejoicing. Newsom was like, you can take showers again. And then the very next year, he's like, psych. But like, we're still, we've been in a mega drought for years. Hell yeah, maybe 400 more to go. You think so? I mean, the last one was. Yeah. I don't know. I just watched that John Oliver thing about water. And it's a lot of stuff that people like you and me already know, but that's just... It's really depressing. Makes me not want to live in a, definitely not live in Los Angeles, but kind of not live in the West. But then we're going to have all these like climate refugees that are moving to other parts of the world with water. Yeah. And there's one thing the East Coast does not love. It's (laughs) refugees. Yeah. And like, and that's a really interesting phenomenon too, that you're having a lot more water on the East Coast and not enough water on the West Coast. And so the East Coast is almost getting too much water in the last in the last decade yeah massachusetts last july they got one-fifth of their entire water year in the month of july and it's like pretty evenly spread they get 50 inches a year and then on top of that snow too Mm -hmm. so the snow melt and then also rain which is just like yeah but it doesn't snow much anymore like the snow date gets pushed back and back and back like it's usually like january it really starts snowing now whereas like not to be like when I was a boy, but when I was a boy, I mean, shit, even in high school, we had like a couple of Halloween storms that dumped on us, which I'm sure is the other pendulum swing of climate change is that when it does snow, it snows way too long and way too hard in the wrong times. But yeah, they like, they're saying that it's going to get like wetter and warmer in the Northeast. It's going to get kind of Portlandier, which is like Portland's not the warmest place on earth, but compared to places that get blizzards and nor'easters for six months out of the year. Yeah. I think how Los Angeles is going to get more Baja-esque, but like not even in the cool way with all the, like the succulents. Yeah, I know. It's just kind of, I'm like sick. Abronia is going to be everywhere. No, but like we're going to get like cheatgrass and like Bromus diandrus. And you already have it. Well, so we have some Bromus. Well, so in Los Angeles proper, we have some populations of Bromus tectorum, but most of our Bromus is Bromus rubens. And oh, you love it. You love weeds. Bromus madrasans. So let me talk about that. So like after, you know, I got let go from working with the National Park Service, um, I was disillusioned. So I went to go work with the- You killed a kid on duty. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to go work with um, the CSUN Institute for Sustainability, where I was doing like monitoring and- community uh science endeavors and science communication um with the with the school and so i was like monitoring for like possums and bats and doing vegetation surveys on campus in a very urban environment right where i was finding um, hundreds of different species of weeds and invasive species and also some relictual coastal sage scrub habitat um close to campus yeah like Really cool, like Acmus Spongauber, um, Juglans Californica, Isocoma menziesii, which oh, I just love, um, Malacothrix saxatilis, all these kind of like um, black walnut, coastal sage grub, grassland kind of species that probably used to exist a lot in the San Fernando Valley historically. Yeah, 
prior to um, Spanish colonization. Yeah, um, Acmes Mon Americanus, um, Croton Cetager, or Cetagerus, I don't know. Oh, I'm glad you said it. I don't have the balls to ever say that one out loud. What? Croton Cetager. Is it Cetager or is it Cetagerus? I'm still hung up on Croton, Croton. There's a croton, croton. <laughs> croton in the in the Galapagos. It's like a huge shrub. Yeah, it's weird because they're euphorbia. Yeah, yeah. So they just do whatever the hell they want. Yeah, euphorbia is weird. I love I love the native ones, the little prostrate ones. Oh yeah, uh, euphorbia valis morte is a really cool like dark blue like fuzzy like it has like you know the classic like desert adaptation where it's like prostrate but it grows as a bunch as much as possible oh so it's yeah like here no it's not a sphere but it's like it makes you stop and go like huh what's going on there it's not like your average boring ass garden weed uh, sorry yeah super rude <laughs> but um so at the institute i also started a native plant garden um, about an acre where we uh did like fruit trees where students could come up and like just take fruit but then also intersperse them with native plants so um over um, 30 different species, 200 plants. We mostly got them from SAMO Fund at the uh, National Park Service. So they'd give away plants and stuff. Um, so I'm doing all that and like maintaining the space and weeding it and uh, teaching students about how to take care of native plants and stuff. And I, I even got some endangered stuff in there. And sadly, since I've left, they've removed it, but I had Berberus nevenii in there. Really? That was doing okay? Yeah, Berberus is like local to the San Fernando Valley. I just never think of it surviving, like, especially, I mean, I guess, I don't know. I guess some plants I imagine don't like to be pampered. And I always thought that was one of them. No, well, but Berberus novenia is a really popular landscaping plant for mm-hmm. native, like native plant gardens. Oh, okay. didn't know that. Yeah. And it's, you know, federally endangered the wild populations. But then um, also Malacathenus davidsonii. Which oh, that's the one we were going to go look for. Then I got robbed blind, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, but there's a lot of... I'm sorry about that, but I'm glad yeah. they left. What did they leave? They left like an orange they, drink? Yeah, they left a little mango drink from 7-Eleven. Yeah, your mango drink from 7-Eleven? It was like the weirdest shitty Batman villain calling card. Like, I, I was like, I was... I couldn't even be mad. I was just fucking confused. Jalapeno and ch- cheese. Uh, what are the jalapeno and cream cheese taquitos? Yeah. From 7 Eleven. Why couldn't you have those for you? I know. A nice hot pizza. (laughs) They're not nice. It's a little rubbery, but I mean you're if you're down bad and you live next to a 7 Eleven and it's raining out, you're gonna get the pizza. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But um, so like uh what else was I doing? So I was doing seed collecting and like teaching students all about like um workshops with like foraging and it was fun I, I like doing that but like the one thing I really struggled with that job was like kind of facing up to the Cal State Northridge kind of um landscaping like the the physical plant management is what we call them but you know everyone facilities everyone has their own name for them mm-hmm. but they're just people that are trying to do their nine to five job and they're they're doing a great job at it but it's their bosses, their supervisors that have this image for how they want the school to look. The yeah. grass lawns, uh, using herbicide, weeds, and stuff like that. And like, I'm not poo-pooing on herbicide or weeds or whatever, but like they have I this, am. They, <laughs> they have this image for how they want the campus to look. And like, 
it doesn't usually include natives and if it does include natives it's like a lot of like what we'd call nativars right mm-hmm. so like plants that do fine in like landscaping but they might not be locally native to the area and so like i kept finding i was like butting heads with a lot of um the management in facilities i was just i was getting sick of it and like it was affecting like my relationship with my boss so i was just like i don't i don't want to do this anymore and right as that was happening I uh, was starting to make connections with Xerces Society and the San Diego Zoo. And they were like, hey, we need someone in Los Angeles to count butterflies. And I'm like, oh, shucks, I don't know anything about that, but I'll try it. And so I've been doing that as the Los Angeles County Volunteer Coordinator for the Xerces Society. I don't get paid, but it's fun because I get to do like news interviews. And- yeah, you've become like the face of LA monarchs. Yeah, but like... And I, like, and I feel like it's ill-deserved because I've had to learn a lot. So I do know a lot, a lot now, but I didn't know a lot back then. And so it was like a, in, imposter syndrome to 10, 10 out of 10. Like, <laughs> what am I doing here? Like, there's so many other people that are more qualified, which is true. But like, I, I've learned a lot since doing the position. And so we had, um, yeah we've had a really good year counting monarchs and it was like the the best time to get involved too everyone was telling me like oh richard you're not going to see anything um because they almost almost went extinct in 2020 right yeah so so 2020 21 they were down to uh 2000 overwintering western monarchs on the coast of california and compared to like what's good numbers so in the 1980s we had millions uh (sighs) probably like over a million maybe between one and two million um, in like 90s and stuff like that. and and this the western population is different than the eastern population mm-hmm. um, not genetically <laughs> they just split at the rockies when the time comes they right or behaviorally different yeah um the eastern population primarily overwinters in central mexico but there might also be overwintering populations in florida and you know maybe texas and maybe louisiana but those really? are yeah, but those also might just be residential urban populations. So um, I wanted to tell you though, you, you know the Wildflowers of the Santa Ana Mountains mm-hmm. book. Uh, so it's written by Bob Allen, who's he's the he's a botanist, but he's also the volunteer coordinator for monarch monarchs in uh, Orange County. So he's Mister Monarch, like he's been doing this since he was uh. in Orange County. He what he used to do was trap monarchs and then tag them with little paper tags and then they'd fly away and then people could figure out where monarchs were going in different parts of the United States with these little tags. It's really interesting, but they can, they fly really well with them and stuff. Yeah. It doesn't impact their fitness, but um, he was even telling me, he's like, Richard, you're not going to see any monarchs. Like it's (laughs) going to be, it's going to be really depressing, but like, sure enough he was wrong he looks like me but like skinnier i was just gonna say like yeah two big red-headed bearded like, guys yeah, he's got like a really big red beard his is better his beard is better but yeah he's also i think he's vegetarian we went to veggie grill together which is really cool god i miss veggie grill yeah that place is awesome it's not even like healthy it doesn't even pretend to. no look. it's the best no. hungover food though holy shit yeah that's just really good garbage food i love it um so yeah we had really good numbers and i uh we had over over was it seven thousand? i have a number written down somewhere in la county over seven thousand overwintering monarchs 
Um, but you know, in Ventura County, San Luis Obispo, they had much more than that. So, oh, if, cool. If you look at all the counties in California or the coast of California, because we do have populations that are in Death Valley, and which I've talked to you about in Bakersfield too. But if you look at the entire coastline of California as a bell curve, the the height of that bell curve is San Luis Obispo and Santa Barbara and Ventura County. Hmm. So everything to the left and right of that, which would be like Northern California, the Bay Area, um, they have don't have that great of numbers of overwintering monarchs. And then on the other end, in Southern California, Baja California, um, San Diego County, Orange County, they, they don't have that great of numbers either. And then Arizona has some overwintering monarchs too, but they don't, they're not that high. But so the, the peak of monarchs is Ventura County, Santa Barbara County, and Slow. So they have the best numbers. Hmm. Yeah, yeah milkweeds exist there, whereas LA they don't anymore. Wait, wait, wait. What was your question? Like, is that because there's just more milkweed there? Okay, so overwintering is different than breeding. Oh, right. Yeah. Right, right, right. No, no, no. But I think this is wow. so. Like, milkweed stimulates breeding in monarchs. It stimulates mm-hmm. like breeding behaviors, like being territorial, fighting, laying eggs, finding a mate, that kind of stuff. The behavior of overwintering, what they do is, I guess I can step back. So monarchs have like five or four or five, six generations per year. So that the longest generation is the overwintering period. So it'll be like August or September, October. And then that something will happen that stimulates them to start flying to California or to Mexico or to Florida. And so they, they're flying, they're flying. And then it hits like October, November. And that's when we start seeing that generation landing on trees on the coast. And because the coast has kind of like temperate, it's like kind of like chill temperatures, like even in the winter time, it gets cold, but it doesn't get like freezing often. It, in really bad years, it might get freezing, but like the coast generally doesn't, get to freezing point generally it's around 50 degrees at night so the monarchs will stay on the coast during the fall and winter and then early spring they start um leaving the coast to go lay eggs as close by as possible on milkweed Mm -hmm. right so historically milkweed populations are not really found close to the close to the coast now, this isn't always true. Narrow leaf milkweed can be found close to the coast in Los Angeles County, in Orange County, in San Diego County, uh, Asclepius fascicularis. Give me but, one second. I think my cat has to use the bathroom. I oh, locked him out. <laughs> okay, should I pause it? Uh, no, keep it going. Okay, I'll just keep recording. I'll just clap so we know. Clap. The other stuff's less important. The milkweed is the most important thing. So, like, Naturally occurring native milkweed doesn't typically occur close to the coast, but there are there's a ton of exceptions to that. And then typically milk native milkweeds don't um, they're not flowering during the fall and winter. They typically like die back, right? They're perennials, but they die back. Now, urbanization has changed all of this. So like we're finding the narrow leaf milkweed in urban areas sometimes does flower in fall and winter Mm. and there still will be green tissue and we have this new milkweed tropical milkweed that 
kind of the epicenter has been Los Angeles and the Bay Area, which have been spreading a lot. Mm-hmm. And so there's a hypothesis that it's mess- messing with monarch breeding behavior and overwintering behavior. <laughs> Your cat is climbing. Fucking cat. <laughs> I saw it climbing. That was so cool. You taught him how to climb ladders and now yeah, everything. Told, yeah, you told me about that. You were able to like the ladder and then you're trying to build stairs for it and like get it to use the stairs. Yeah, he won't. <laughs> he just meows and meows until I let him in. Sorry about that. Um, so like tropical milkweed doesn't die back in the fall and winter but perhaps urban populations of the native milkweeds don't either or at least they don't die back as much as we need them to now why is this a problem is because parasites that take advantage of monarchs like oe which is a protozoan um, persist on perennial milkweeds that don't die back in the fall and winter. This could be native milkweed. This can be the invasive tropical milkweed. It's mostly the invasive tropical milkweed that has the protozoan, but that doesn't stop it from also occurring on native milkweeds that haven't died back. So this all needs to be looked into, but because of urbanization, milkweeds are also being pushed closer to the coast all across California. And so we don't know what that's doing to the overwintering behavior of monarchs if we have milkweed all around the coast where they didn't used to historically be native or non-native how is that impacting overwintering migratory behavior maybe Mm -hmm. maybe it's growing the population of these residential monarchs that are just like look like i'd rather just live here year round i don't want to do this whole migration thing anymore um so and then that interplay between the genetics between residential monarchs and migratory monarchs and are they converting to each other or is the relationship mostly going from residential to migratory or migratory into residential we don't know any of this and so part of what i was doing too was collecting genomic um i was collecting specimens for genomic analysis at csu fort collins i wasn't you know i don't go there but i was sending samples to a lab um the funk lab at CSU Fort Collins. So hopefully they'll be getting at some of these questions about the genetics of migratory monarchs and then maybe comparing them to residential monarchs too. So that'd be really interesting. Well, awesome, man. Thank you very much for your time. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Any fun research you got coming out? Any talks you're given? We're trying to publish a paper that's kind of neat about looking at bird populations that changed after the um, Latuna fire. So before and after, so Latuna is in the San, like the Verdugo Hills in the San Fernando Valley, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot of papers that look at bird populations and their impacts by wildfire. So we're trying to get that published in Western birds. Hopefully it happens. Very cool. Fingers crossed. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't have anything to plug, but I'm trying to get into school in BSU at Boise, so I'll be moving to Idaho. So that's gonna be a big change for me. If anyone wants to help Richard move, hit him up. Well, my boyfriend's definitely gonna be helping me move. <laughs> he's been told that he's gonna help me. He's been instructed. I'll pay for his flight. Um, I'm being such a baby about it. I'll literally pay for his <laughs> back to Los Angeles. So you know this, but my boyfriend's in the film industry and so he kind of has to stay here. Yeah, um, it's a hell of a drive. I've done it. Not to Boise, but to Montana next to Coeur d'Alene. Yeah, no, it's like a couple days. If you want to live 
comfortably if you want to just be like cracked out and do it in one fell swoop it's like probably a day did you um did you uh what was i gonna say about the drive um i forgot my thought so oh oh, so i have to drive in december if i get into the program oh god have you driven (laughs) no but i can tell you you shouldn't (laughs) oh god maybe i'll have to move in november yeah well good luck with that thanks thank you richard do you think you have enough for the podcast? 